All right, y'all, we're going to get started. This morning, I'm going to be, what I'm going to be talking about is our need to engage with others in good discipleship so that we properly steward what the Lord has given to us. As a people, we are blessed with much, and because we've been given much, much is expected of us. So I have a few challenging questions for us to consider this morning. Are you stepping out in faith to change the society around you, or are you letting society change you and those you love? Or maybe you're just living a lukewarm life, neither hot nor cold. The main scripture we're going to unpack this morning is Luke 12, 35 through 48. I'm going to start off with 35, where Jesus says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve, and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So overall, I think it's pretty clear what the main point is here. But just to simplify, I'll say that Jesus is telling us to be ready for his return. Now, there's actually two meanings that we can consider as we study this portion of Scripture. The narrow sense of this Scripture is the return of Jesus, but there's a wider sense that refers to the time when Christ enters our lives, when we accept and begin to follow Him, when we take up our cross daily. As we heard in that Scripture, there's actually praise for the servant that's ready. In verse 37, we see that the servant is to gird himself to serve. Those long flowing robes that they wore during biblical times were actually a hindrance to their work. So when a man prepared to work, he'd gird up his robe under his girdle to leave himself free for activity. So in this sense, to gird oneself up is to prepare to do God's work. Now, of course, no one can tell of the day or hour when eternity will invade time and Jesus will come. In that broader sense, though, we know that the Holy Spirit will use us if we're open to Him and prepared to serve, to do His good works. Now, that scripture I just read to me really begs a question, and that is, when Jesus enters our lives, or when He returns, how would we like for Him to find us? And I came up with three biblical answers. The first answer I found was that we would like for Jesus to find us working to usher in his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, life for so many of us is filled with loose ends. There are things undone, things half done, things put off, things not even attempted. Great men always have the sense of a task that must be finished, must be completed. My second point I found is that we would like for Jesus to find us at peace with one another. What do you do that brings peace? Or I'll ask it in the negative sense. What do you do that hinders peace? Number three, we would like for Jesus to find us at peace with him. What does that mean to you? Peace with him. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
So I've established a couple of things, that in the narrow sense, we need to be ready for Jesus to return, and in the broad sense, we need to be ready for Christ to enter our lives. We need to take up our cross daily. So moving on to the next truth from Scripture, in Luke 12, 41, Peter asks a question that I think we should all consider. We should all answer. I'm going to introduce this question now, but I'm going to actually come back to it when we talk about application, how we apply these truths. So Peter said, the question is, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And in some ways that sounds like a funny question, but I actually think it's a good legitimate question from Peter. I think he's just being a good disciple asking clarifying questions because of some of the ways that Jesus has talked about parables previously. So Peter's asking Jesus who he is speaking to. So just to make an example, is, is Jesus speaking only to the 12 apostles, only to his 12 disciples? Uh, in our modern day, is Jesus just telling your pastors to be prepared to do good works? After Peter asks who Jesus is speaking to, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be gone a long time, my master will be a long time coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has get, been given much, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So from that portion of Scripture, I'd like to pull out some things that stuck out to me. So first, in verse 42, Jesus asks, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward? Let those words sink in. Faithful and sensible. Are you faithful and sensible with your time? Your energy? How about your finances? Are you creating margin in your life? Are you so busy that you don't have time for the important things? Are you working or playing so hard that you don't have time and energy for your family or to disciple God's people? Are you faithful and sensible with your finances? Do you spend less than you make? Do you save? Do you give? Jesus asked, who is the faithful and sensible steward? When we define the Greek word that's translated as steward, we find that a steward is an administrator, a person who manages the domestic affairs of a family business, a minor, a treasurer, a chamberlain of a city, a house manager, overseer, or here's where it gets really interesting for us, y'all, a spiritual steward, the holder of a commission in the service of the gospel. Faithful and sensible steward. Second point, are you wasting time doing things that actually hinder the kingdom of God? The example Jesus uses here in verse 45 is getting drunk. But we all know there's all sorts of ungodly ways to waste our time. What do you need to purge from your life? 
The third thing that really stuck out to me was the very last sentence of verse 48. It says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. I hope everybody really hears me on this part. We've all been given much. You, at least y'all sitting here with me now online, y'all might be in some lesser states. But we live in the great state of Texas, right? In the United States of America, the greatest country in the world. Have y'all ever seen other countries? You ever been to other countries? Because I have. I think I've been to over two dozen different countries. One thing I can tell you is that if you live in the United States of America, you have been given much. When I put that together with the last sentence from Scripture I read, I believe that every one of us has been given much and entrusted with much, and that means that for us, much is required and much more will be asked of us. So how do we apply this to our lives? We've unpacked that much is expected of us. We have work to do, but that raises another question. What is our work? Today, I'm going to give you two application points. The first application point is this. Your work is your belief in Jesus Christ. In John 6, 28, Jesus asked, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? In verse 29, Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, Jesus explains it again just a few verses later in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So when it comes to our salvation, what must we do? Believe. Everyone that believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Now ask yourself another question. What does it mean to believe? Now I think we all get it, but I'm going to expand on this just a little, because this point is vital to how we spend eternity. I'm going to use the Passover as an example. We don't have time to unpack all of this. So if you feel like it, take some time later, read through Exodus. This part I'm going to talk about specifically is Exodus 12. But in the book of Exodus, we learn that Pharaoh would not free God's people. There had been many plagues, but this 10th plague would be different. God tells Moses to speak to Israel. They were to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, and paint that unblemished lamb's blood on the two doorposts and the lintel. They were to actually eat the unblemished lamb with their loins girded. Did y'all catch that? It's the same as from Luke that we've been talking about. They were to prepare to do God's work. They were to prepare for God to work. God struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, and Israel would be set free. God passed over the homes that were covered by the blood of the unblemished lamb. Now, as you think about salvation, consider this. It didn't matter that the people inside those homes were imperfect. God didn't say, if my people are perfect and covered by the blood of the Lamb, I will pass over them. The people just needed to believe. They needed to heed God's word and accept that the blood of the unblemished Lamb would cover them. If they didn't believe, meaning if they didn't paint that blood on the doorposts, they would have paid a very terrible price. It really is important to grasp that truth. Only the blood of Jesus can cover you. So if you're hearing this message this morning and you're ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, 
please do reach out to one of us here. That said, I would imagine that most of those that hear my message today are saved. So for y'all, I have some more questions. When was the last time you were part of another person's process of salvation? Meaning, do you know what it, do you know how to share the gospel? Do you have your own personal testimony worked out so you can easily share it with others? You might want to write them down and think about it. When was the last time you served as an ambassador for God's prevenient grace for someone else? Application point number two. This is where we get back to Luke 12, 41, where Peter asked Jesus who he's speaking to. Was Jesus telling just his 12 disciples to be ready, or was Jesus telling me and you to be ready? To explain my second application point, I'm going to jump out a little farther and look through the lens of a biblical theology here. What I'm going to do is just look how this concept is laid out all the way through the Bible, starting in Genesis. So in Genesis, we only make it to chapter 3 before the fall, right? Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. They are suddenly ashamed and hide from God. God speaks to Adam, Eve, and the serpent, telling them the consequences of their sin. To the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So here we're introduced to a concept that really does run all the way through the scriptures. There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of Adam and Eve and the serpent. The seed shall bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent shall bruise him on the heel. Y'all stick with me. This is going somewhere neat. So the question that we have here is, who is the seed that will bruise the head of the serpent? We don't have time to name every person that carries this seed, so I'm just going to run down a condensed list this morning. Adam and Eve, of course, produce children. First born to them is Cain. Next, they have another son named Abel. Their firstborn is Cain, so one might think that Cain will carry on the seed, but we know how that ends, right? Cain murders Abel. So the seed carries on through their brother, Seth. Then we go to the, through the entire lineage of Seth to Noah, and then on to the three sons of Noah where Shem is chosen. Do we stop there? Is, is that the end? It keeps going, right? It carries all the way through the Bible. What else does the Bible have to say about this? We trace through the genealogy of Shen to the son of Terah. Terah's son is Abraham, and I think we all know who that is. From there, it's going to be Isaac or Ishmael. From Isaac, we see the seed will carry on through Esau or Jacob. Looks like it's going to be Esau, but it doesn't carry on, but it doesn't. It carries on through Jacob. Now, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, we see that it's Judah that will carry the seed. Again, does it stop in Genesis, or does the Bible have more to say? Keeps going on through the lineage until we see another unlikely brother chosen, the youngest of many, David, King David. The seed doesn't stop with David, and many generations later, we finally end up in the Gospels of the New Testament where we see that the seed is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the seed, right? That's not surprising to anybody that's listening. I think you all understand where I was going with that, but that actually isn't the end, and we're just getting to my main point. Do we stop at the Gospels, or do we keep reading the Word all the way through into the Epistles? When we follow this biblical theology all the way through, we end up in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where we read, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now, did y'all catch that? This is pretty exciting to me. Paul explains something crucial here. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
Just to clarify here, Paul is speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. So who's the seed? Jesus is the seed. But there's something we don't want to miss. We are the church, and the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us. We are called to crush Satan under our feet. We're empowered by the grace of God to crush the serpent. So I have a question. Are you crushing the head of the serpent, or are you just waiting around for him to crush you? Now, some of us might be asking a good question. How? How do we crush the head of the serpent? That answer is a long one, so I'm just going to cover a few main points. How do we take part in crushing the head of the serpent? Well, first of all, we do our part to usher in the kingdom of God. We do this partially through the sanctification process. One way to explain sanctification is to say it refers to the process of gradual purification from sin, and it is a progressive spiritual growth that should mark the life of a believer. We are to be actively involved in our sanctification. Now, only by God's grace can we be sanctified, but we do have a role in this part. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we know what's good and acceptable and perfect? How do we know what the will of God is? We've got to study his word. We've got to be in God's word. Not just study his word, but accept that it has authority over our lives, the authority that it truly is. We need to be in prayer regularly. We need to serve others in our community. We need to serve the people of God right here at Harvest Connection Church. How are you serving God's people? A huge part of our sanctification process occurs through discipleship. We are commanded to take part in the discipleship process. To disciple others, though, we have to be in relationship with others. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Now, just to be clear, that scripture I read isn't a suggestion. It's a command from Jesus. We are commanded to make disciples, you and me. You have been given much, and much is expected. Again, I ask you to consider, what does it mean to believe? One thing I'm sure of is Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I've run through a lot here, so I'm going to do a real quick recap. I started by challenging us to be good stewards. God has given us much, and much is required of us. I asked if we're stepping out in faith to change society or if we're just standing by as society changes us and those we love. We broke down Luke 12, 35 through 48, where we learned that we need to gird ourselves. We need to be prepared to serve. In Luke 12, 42 through 48, we learned that we need to be faithful and sensible stewards. We learned that from everyone whom has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. So how do we take action on those truths? We can believe in Jesus Christ, and we can accept that we are empowered by God to crush the head of the serpent. To crush the serpent, we actively engage in our process of sanctification, and we go and make disciples. Now, in conclusion, I want to leave you all with some food for thought, something just for you to pause, ponder, and pray about. 
In preparation for this message, I put in a lot of research, and I want to share something with you all that really impacted me personally. I'm going to read a quote. I'm going to quote from a commentary I read from Daryl Bach. He says, perspective is crucial. Sometimes when we're going through particularly difficult situations, everything seems hopeless and pointless. Only after some time do we gain perspective so that events come into focus and the lessons become obvious. Perspective in life can work in two directions. Usually it's reflective as we look back and consider what has happened in relation to subsequent events. But perspective can also be prospective. Perspective means in consideration of or in preparation for the future. We can look ahead. We can act now in light of what we hope will happen in the future. A couple who saves prudently now for their children's future education or for their own retirement, they're living prospectively. That kind of perspective is harder because it requires faith and counts on events that have not yet occurred. It's very different from living strictly according to present needs and gratification. Christians are supposed to live prospectively. Believers know that Jesus is returning and that, and that all will give an account for their stewardship. So in this passage, Jesus gives a series of three images to underline the importance of living prospectively. The image of being prepared, that's verse 35 and 36. The image of waiting for the Son of Man, that's verses 39 and 40. And the image of the different kinds of stewards, verses 41 through 48. That calls us to reflect on our view of the future. The nature of of the future helps to determine present priorities. Jesus wants to make sure disciples are prepared for what is to come. Faith means trusting God not only for the present, but also for the future, by walking faithfully with him until he returns. What God will do affects what we will do. To be associated with Jesus is to have responsibility before him. Those who are sensitive to his return and their accountability to him will serve him faithfully. God will richly reward the faithful. Those who take his accountability less seriously will be sorted out accordingly. Those who never really responded to the master and ignored his return by doing the opposite of what he asked for will seal their place among the unfaithful. So the end of this passage explains the start, the beginning. We should live prospectively, sensitive to the accountability of discipleship. We should wear our work clothes and keep our lamps burning, looking for the Lord's return by serving him faithfully. Thanks, y'all. Blessings.